The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. Now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everyone. When it comes to fruit trees, blossoms aren't just for show. They're an important part of the process that leads to a bountiful harvest. So here's how it works. In the spring, fruit tree blossoms open up and they release pollen. And bees and other pollinators help us out by transferring the pollen from one flower to another. If pollination is successful, well, the fruit will start to form. And of course, you will care for the tree by watering it, feeding it, and protecting it from pests and diseases. Then you will enjoy a fantastic harvest. Easy peasy. But what happens if the trees blossom just a little bit too early? Let's say there's a warm spell in the late winter and your fruit tree's blossoms emerge. And then temperatures change again, and it gets really, really cold. A deep freeze is forecast. What's going to happen then? Well, if the deep freeze kills your blossoms, your hope for a harvest that year will die too. And that would be very sad. So on the show today, Dr. Kevin Folta, a professor and the department chair of the Horticultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida in Gainesville, will tell us how to protect our fruit trees' blossoms from frost. And I'm going to talk to Kevin in just a moment, but first I would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, your comments, or just email us to say hello, and we will enter you into today's contest. And this month's prize is a book called Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, Planting and Tending Small Fruit Trees and Berries in Gardens and Containers. And it's by Christy Wilhelmy, valued at $27.99 US dollars. So to enter today's contest, send your email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. And do remember to include your first name and where you are writing from. I look forward to hearing from you. So now, Kevin, welcome to the show today. Hey, thank you very much for having me aboard. It's great to be part of this really nice archive. Thank you. Well, we want to know a little bit about you to start off. So the first thing, oh, just to correct, you're not the department chair, are you? Somehow I was misled. That That was your aspirational role. Well, it was actually, I did it for five and a half years uh, a while ago, and there's still a lot of residue of that on the internet. So yeah, I've, I've, I've been cleansed of that responsibility. Okay, but you're still a pretty important guy, let's face it. Right? Well, At least the fruit trees think so. <laughs> so tell me a little bit, in, in addition to the academic side of your career, um, you know, you are so much involved in the science of fruit trees, but you're also personally involved. Tell me a little bit about your involvement in growing fruit trees yourself. Well, this is the really fun part about it. Normally, as academics, we have the thick textbook and 
uh, we talk about the words on the page and what scientists have learned from experience in general. But I do it firsthand. Uh, my wife is a farmer full time. We produce fruit, vegetables, eggs, and other things for a weekly farmers market. And so I get to experience all the joys and tragedies of trying to raise fruit in North Central Florida. It's, it's a, definitely a challenge. And what types of fruits do you grow on the farm? I, th I think all of them. <laughs> uh, we have everything from uh, guavas to mulberries to persimmons to peaches to plums, pears, apples, and um, a few more jujubes. Uh, we grow quite a bit of diversity because every week at the farmer's market, we don't need a ton of peaches. We need a little bit of everything. And then we watch through the seasons, how it changes. Um, and it's it's really a lot of fun. It really, uh, it, it keeps us going because there's always a problem to solve, but always something new to discover and new varieties and being able to bring things to the market that people have never tasted. So persimmons or jujubes are amazing fruits that people never had an opportunity to try. We get to bring that to them. So very rewarding. So we have a question already from Greg from NYC. Greg says, hello, Susan, does your guest have a book out? And if so, where can I purchase it? <laughs> no, um, I don't have a book out per se. I, I edited volumes on the genomics of rosaceae. So in other words, I'm a uh, molecular biologist and genomicist by, uh, by training, and I've edited a few volumes of more academic compilations uh, on berry breeding and on genomics of fruit crops. But this goes back uh, maybe 2009 now. So that's pretty old stuff for genomics. Uh, but uh, one of these days, I'll put together a new book on this. But right now, I just do the, I do the Talking Biotech podcast where we talk mostly about uh, biotechnology. So that, uh, but one day a book is in the works. Sounds great. Okay, so you were talking about the fun of growing all sorts of types of fruits on the farm. Now, there's also the challenging side that you mentioned. So tell me a story about your fruit trees and frost. And I know you had a very dramatic situation. So tell us about it. Yes, it's, it's, it definitely was dramatic. Um, you know, We've had a few spikes where I live in north central Florida. I live in a small town named Archer which is a red flashing light. And we have um, occasional freezes. And these are on the map and are on the weather report and we prepare for them, we know they're coming. And uh, one night, it was probably March, 20, March 13th, 2022, it was last year that we saw a freeze coming. And it was late in the year, it was March, March 13th, we're usually nice and warm by then. And I saw it on, on the weather report getting maybe into the 20s. And to set the stage, we have peaches on the trees. We got mulberries on the mulberries leafed out. Everything's ready to roll. And uh, I, I was so nervous about this. I went and sat in the car all night with my cell phone monitoring all our temperature monitors, which are all over the place. And it looked like we were going to make it. We saw it go to like 39, 38, 37 Fahrenheit. Got down to 36, about six in the morning. And I decided I'd just pack it up and go home. So I went home. <laughs> went home uh, down the street from where our field is, uh, went to sleep, and then the bottom fell out. And we dropped down to 27 degrees for two hours, which was enough to kill every single stone fruit uh, on the trees and really do a number on some young uh, mulberry trees. So we, we lost quite a bit in a two-hour window, probably lost several thousand dollars worth of fruit. So is there a line in the sand? Is there a temperature beyond which that most blossoms will not survive? It really depends on what species it is. So some are more durable than others. Apples do a little better and peaches kind of can get by for a little bit. If you're talking about dips down to 30, maybe 28, you can get away for a short time. But when you start getting down below 27, 25, even short exposure is usually lethal. It's uh, it 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 is a question of time and temperature, the two things together that really do synergistically affect how bad the damage is. And and what will the blossoms look like? So you go to sleep, you're having sweet dreams. You know you were the good guy. You sat in your car all night, freezing your you know what off, being a really good person. And then you're sleeping away. When you wake up and go look at the blossoms, what do they look like? How do you know that uh, this was not a good a good thing? Yeah, 
there was uh, physically frost on the trees, which is one big tip off, but um, everything was frozen. I mean, we had actual ice on the trees from condensing dew and uh, humidity in the air. And when I looked at the weather, actually looked at the weather report before I ventured out, so I knew we were doomed. Um, unfortunately, it was sad because all of the fruits within a day or two would turn dark brown um, and uh, fall off. Ones that weren't severely damaged got brown rot really bad. It was just a absolute disaster because we always count on, it's always the first fruits of the year. And to lose mulberries and peaches is really sad. Wow, that's uh, that's so sad. And so I guess what you're saying is that the late frost will kill not just the delicate blossoms, but even if the fruit has started to form, you are not safe. You really, it's it's everything is in danger. Is that true? It's generally true. It'll actually, uh, will kill small fruits if it's more than a uh, short exposure. Uh, we have uh, loquats were on trees this year when it got down to 18 Fahrenheit. And it destroyed all the loquats that were on the trees. And uh, loquats are a great crop down here. And uh, that was bad. But what's worse is that if a tree leaves out prematurely, or even on time, if we get a frost after the uh, tree leaves out, it can not only kill those leaves, but it can actually kill the tree itself. Um, it'll kill back the small twigs first, then the larger twigs, the small branches, bigger branches, and can kill a whole tree if the cambium is awake and the vascular the vascular system is flowing. Um, it's very vulnerable to freeze. And plants do a lot of things to protect themselves, but that freeze can be extremely dangerous. Wow. Okay. So it can kill the blossoms. It can kill the leaves. It can kill the fruit. And it can kill the entire tree. Very dangerous. So it's clear that if there is a frost coming, growers will be looking at their you know weather predicting tools and checking it out. And we're going to talk today about ways to protect fruit trees from frost. So I have a little story. A few years ago, we had our apricot trees and they were in full bloom. It was absolutely beautiful. And then we had a forecasted deep frost coming up in the night. And I was like, oh my gosh, what should I do? So we all got together. We all brought tarps. And somehow we laced the tarps together so that was one big tarp. We then took our harvesting uh, sticks and we managed to put all the tarps all around both apricot trees and we sort of tied it underneath. They looked um, very interesting. It was sort of, sort of like some sort of art exhibit with all the different color tarps on them. Now, we left the tarps on for... Uh, a couple of nights until the risk of frost had had passed. And we had beautiful, a lot of fruit on the tree that year. So obviously we did something right. But what does covering the trees do? And what is the actual right way to do it look like? That's actually the best strategy. If you have a small, uh, tr smaller tree or garden um, or enough trees that where it's manageable. Um, or in a larger operation, the smaller new trees, if there's a way to protect them. If you can cover trees with some sort of a frost cloth or blanket, um, even sheets, whatever you, you have, and then uh, usually put some sort of fabric on the first layer and then plastic over the top, like a plastic tarp, something like that. Those multiple layers make a big difference in keeping the heat in because the ground is warm from the day's sun and the day's temperatures, and the heat is emanating from the sun, from the ground up into the canopy of that tree and getting trapped under that uh, umbrella of cloth and plastic. And that works out really well because it keeps the temperature up just above ambient. So you could probably uh, compensate below, uh, if you're below freezing ambient, maybe 30, um, speaking to somebody in Canada, I should be speaking metric. Um, <laughs> I totally forgot. Yeah, if you're down at around minus one, you can probably do okay uh, just with that coverage for a couple hours. But typically it's going to take a little bit more if you really want to keep that tree safe. Okay, so you start off with fabric. What's the advantage of that? We just had tarp right on top of the branches. We were concerned, oh my gosh, is the tarp going to rub up against the blossoms and damage the blossoms? But why fabric first? Yeah, it seems that the when you have plastic directly against the tree, 
just that it is more capable of conducting the heat away from the surface of the uh, of the leaf. So you actually do start to pull uh, temperature out, actually pull heat out of the leaves, which is really part of the problem. If you put fabric first, it has a little less likelihood of conducting the heat away. Kind of like when you touch, you know, if you touch a pillow versus touching cold metal outside, or if you leave a pillow outside, I guess, um, you you would feel that heat leaving your hand more on the on the metal than you would on something soft. Okay, so just to summarize, what we do is we first cover our tree somehow with some sort of fabric. It can be a blanket, it can be some cotton fabric, and then on top of it, put the tarp, but then somehow turn it into a tent or an umbrella. So it you don't have to tuck it in and tie it right to the trunk to like a big lollipop. That's right. I've actually seen people do that and wonder why their tree died. You're cinching it around the bottom. Now, all of a sudden, there's a very limited heat capacity of that tree canopy that's encased inside that balloon inside that bubble and if you leave the, the bottom of it open the heat from the earth will move right up especially if you're running water uh, if you're running some sort of a, a micro jet or spray underneath now that the, the heat from that water will rise and fill that inside that space it really does make a difference to leave it open and especially if you can leave it open and bring it all the way to the ground Oh, wow. Okay. Let's, to be continued, I want to remind me, I want to talk about water. We've got a couple of questions here. Jeff from Illinois. Jeff says, bloom loss to freezing is an issue for most growers. No difference really between someone in zone five or zone seven, correct? It's only people who have large bodies of water in the right place related to them that have less problems with freezes. So this is from Jeff. Okay, so like part one is, does it make any difference what zone you're in or is, you know, deep freeze, deep freeze wherever you live, zones five, zone seven? Yeah, deep freeze is deep freeze and deep freeze is getting weirder all the time. We're, at least it seems like we're getting more of these aberrant weather spikes that I never remember when I started in Florida 20 years ago. And I'm from Illinois originally and I remember we would always have uh, cold winters where it got cold and stayed cold. And those dormant buds have onboard mechanisms to protect them. It's only when they start to pop, when they flower out with leaves or flowers, that they become suddenly vulnerable. And, and that's going to be the same no matter where you are. Okay. The next thing he mentions is bodies of water nearby. Yeah. How will that change things? body of water has a significant heat capacity. So we talk about water. One of the neat things it does is it stores energy very well. So if you use, uh, if you have a body of water next to you, the body of water will tend to freeze last and also and also melt slow. But it has less temperature deviation around that body of water. Uh, today in class, we talked about uh, I plant papayas around an old swimming pool. Uh, we have an old above ground pool that was partially filled with water that we never swim in. It's a tadpole. On, but uh, you can grow papayas next to it because they never freeze. That body of water, small as it is, has the ability to keep the air around it warm. So that's incredible. So again, you we have created this picture of building these sort of umbrellas of fabric and then plastic over our trees. Now, what if we did something like bring some buckets of water and just place them under the umbrella? What would happen then? Would you get that benefit? It's a slight benefit. And so the bucket of water, I use five gallon buckets on small trees and I'll put them right up against the, the young developing tree. And it does two things. It helps protect the graft union from temperature deviations because just the contact with a larger mass of water will help that tree avoid freezing. And the other nice thing about it is that as it, it is a thermal mass underneath that umbrella of fabric and plastic. It actually is giving off a little bit of radiant heat, and that's helping to keep the, the, the temperature underneath that canopy a little bit higher. And the other thing it does, too, is as a little bit of freezing is happening, you're, uh, you start to uh, give off a little bit of heat. And that sounds strange, but we can talk about that more later. Can you see it? Like, will you see steam or anything rising from these buckets? Or You actually do see a little convection coming off. You actually do see... Uh, a little bit of uh, steam coming off, depending on how hot your water is. Um, our water coming out of the well is 72 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 22 C. 
And you do actually see some of that escaping as visible condensation uh, in, in, the, uh, in the field environment. Amazing. Okay. Question from James. Susan, I was on your guest website. So very interesting. He is actually a molecular biologist. Thanks. Yeah. So is there a big connection here? Uh, not so much. I, I was trained on a, um, so I had two kind of two pathways that collided. I was uh, I always loved gardens, always loved growing my own food, always did this. And uh, at the same time, was always thrilled with DNA and genetics. And I studied DNA and genetics through all my, since I was 10 and uh, had a great time with that. And then both of these things collided when I started at University of Florida, where uh, as a professor had a really good toolbox of interesting tools for DNA analysis and for understanding how DNA works, how genetics and inheritance and the genes that encode important traits. And I was brought on to serve the strawberry industry because we could uh, understand the genetics of flavor and aroma and disease resistance. And just to show you my ignorance at the time, I said, if you want me to work with strawberries, I'm going to need some strawberry trees. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. Oh, you've learned a lot since then. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> strawberry. That would be kind of fun to have a strawberry tree, but uh, interesting. Okay. One more question here. This one's from Monique. Monique. Hello, Susan. Thank you for all the information on the proper way to dig a hole for a fruit tree. Your advice is amazing. Okay, Monique wrote me recently. I wrote <laughs> her back. She just said, listening to you today, thanks. Well, thank you for, for writing us, Monique. So, okay. So here we are. We've got our setup. Now, um, one of the people I think that wrote in today, Jeff, um, sent me a picture recently. He puts, he covers his fruit trees with plastic. And he rolled his gas grill underneath, which he keeps on low. Is Would that work? Would that make a difference? Or would that cause some sort of explosion and a fire or whatever? Is it a that, good plan? That, it's not a bad idea. We actually, in a high tunnel, we'll, put, we'll shove our grill in there <laughs> on a really cold night. And uh, it, it does work just fine. The problem is, is that in a high tunnel you do open up the possibility for uh, intoxication with carbon monoxide for anybody who's in or out of there. Uh, inside a, the canopy of a tree, probably not a problem. The thing I'd be really careful about is, can it get too warm? And going from too hot to too cold in sudden bursts is always a problem because the uh, thing that makes a tree resilient is gradual acclimation to cold temperatures and gradual acclimation to high temperatures. And so to kind of give it the whiplash of you're, today you're freezing, now you're cooking, you know, uh, is something that a tree really isn't made to uh, understand. Gotcha. What about Christmas lights? I've heard about uh, people, growers in colder climates, uh, hanging Christmas lights on their trees to keep them a little warmer. Would that work? Well, there's two things about Christmas lights that are interesting. First is that the modern lights are all LED and the modern lights don't give off any heat. So if you have a, uh, a grandparent uh, who has those big old chunky bulbs that get that are made with a you know uh, incandescent filament, those do give off some heat and can be strung around a tree canopy to add a little bit of electrical heat. Um, that is assuming that you have electricity that far out into a garden or into a uh, uh, into a grove. Uh, the other problem with that is that light does mean something to a plant. And when you give it a light signal in the middle of the night, it can cause different things to happen, either poor performance in subsequent days or even could uh, change the way a plant flowers. So you have to be a little bit careful about giving light when a plant is not expecting it. Right. Okay. So we got, it's a balance. We'll find a balance. A final question on this segment that I have is, is there a temperature that this covering is just isn't even going to work for it? Is there a certain temperature where you're way even wasting your time covering your tree with this fabric and then plastic? Yeah, I think that when you get down below probably 20, well, I should say, I didn't say that, probably uh, 18 to 20 Fahrenheit is probably a, a, a not going to do much. Uh, that's when your ambient temperatures are so low that the heat transfer out is is insurmountable. It also depends on factors like wind and relative humidity, other factors like that. But in general, if you 
if you put enough blankets and an, uh, enough, uh, so if you're a backyard fruit tree grower, you can put enough insulation on it and with water and that insulation, you probably can protect the tree probably close to zero Fahrenheit. I mean, you almost probably can do it. I've never tried. Wow. Okay. Worth a try. I want to hear from listeners who do try in that kind of cold, maybe our listeners in Alaska or somewhere. Um, well, here, let's do this because I really want to talk to you also about what people do, which is using sprinklers on their fruit trees to encase the blossoms in ice as a protective layer. So I would love to talk to you about that, but let's do that. Let's hear a few words from our sponsors and then we'll come back after the break and we will continue to discuss this. Are you okay holding on the line for just a minute? Absolutely. Lots more to cover. Yes, there is a lot more to cover. Wonderful. You are listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the Fruit Tree Care books, Growing Urban Orchards and Grow Fruit Trees Fast. And we'll be back right after the break. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes over 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You can learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Whiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. If you're listening to this show, you are passionate about fruit trees. But do you care how your trees are grown? Silver Creek Nursery is a family-owned business, and we grow our fruit trees sustainably using only organic inputs. We stock a huge range of cultivars, like Wolf River, an apple tree that produces fruit so large you can make an entire pie with just one apple. We also carry red-fleshed apples, like Pink Pearl, as well as heirloom and disease-resistant varieties of apples, pears, apricots, cherries, and more. We ship our trees across Canada, and we can also supply you with berry canes and edible companion plants to plant near your trees. At Silver Creek Nursery, we grow fruit trees for a sustainable food future. Learn more about us at silvercreeknursery.ca. Are you looking for a high-quality compost for your plants and fruit trees? Vermicomposting or worm composting may be the answer. It turns kitchen scraps and green waste into a rich, dark soil, rich in organic matter and in beneficial organisms. But making vermicompost at home can be messy and time-consuming. That's where Vermabec comes in. Vermabec produces 100,000 liters of high-quality, vermicompost annually, and it's perfect for those who want to skip the hassle of making it themselves. Vermabec sells to home growers and organic farmers across North America. So, give your plants the boost they need and try Vermabec's vermicompost today. Visit vermabec.ca to learn more. For 10% off, use the discount code COMPOST. Hi, I'm Susan Poisner from OrchardPeople.com. And I'm Steph Roth from Silver Creek Nursery in Ontario. Join us for an interactive online workshop called Fruit Tree Grafting for Anyone. 
in this workshop, we'll teach you how to add different fruit tree varieties to an existing tree, and we'll teach you how to create a fruit tree from scratch. Visit orchardpeople.com workshops for more information and to sign up today. We'll see you in class. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board right now, send us an email. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner. And in the show today, we've been talking about how to protect fruit tree blossoms from frost. And that is really important because fruit tree blossoms are delicate. And if they die in a late frost, well, they can't produce a harvest for you. So my guest today is Dr. Kevin Folta. He's a professor in the Horticultural Sciences Department of the University of Florida in Gainesville. Kevin is also the host of two podcasts, Science, Facts and Fallacies and Talking Biotech. So in the first part of the show today, we talked about how to protect fruit tree blossoms by creating protective tents around the trees. But there are other ways to protect fruit tree blossoms, and we're going to talk about them next. But first, I want to hear from you. If you're listening to the show live today, you can enter today's contest. To enter the contest, all you have to do is send an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com with your question or comment, or just email us to say hi. And be sure to include your first name and where you are writing from. The prize for this episode's contest is Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, Planting and Tending Small Fruit Trees and Berries in Gardens and Containers. It's by Christy Wilhelmy, and it's valued at $27.99 US. So if you want to enter the contest and win the prize, just send us an email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. And now back to Kevin. Hi again. Thanks for waiting, Kevin. No, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, we got a quick email here from Cindy. Cindy writes, very interesting show today. Please enter me into the book contest. Thank you. Oh, and I'm in Roanoke, Virginia. Well, I've been to Roanoke, and that's a very nice place. Thanks, Cindy. Okay, so Kevin, I had an interesting question from Emily. Now, Emily is in Zone 8A in South Carolina. Emily grows peaches, plums, mulberries, Asian pears, and other trees in her garden. And in recent years, they have experienced warm spells followed by frosts. So what is Emily doing? She's been trying to protect her trees by setting up a sprinkler on a ladder near one of the blossoming fruit trees on the nights when the deep freeze is forecast. She then runs the water sprinkler, and when the temperature reaches freezing, those living blossoms become covered with a layer of ice. So her idea is that the ice will insulate the blossoms, keeping them at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. And that means, hopefully, that when the temperature dives even lower, her blossoms will be protected. Kevin, does that approach work? Emily, you're a genius. You can come for my job anytime. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly what you should do. Um, water is a really interesting compound that when you spray water, a couple of things are happening. You lose what's called sensible heat. It's kind of a funny term. Uh, it's the temperature that when it comes out of the well or out of uh, municipal lines, that water has some heat in it that when it lands on the on the bud or on the tree, it'll leave that heat behind and impart that onto the object that you're freezing. But water does something else that's rather interesting. 
that as it goes from a liquid into a solid, you can imagine liquid being all these molecules dancing around and kind of moving and jostling. And that when you turn solid, they align together and make a crystal. So it's almost like a diamond. They stand still all of a sudden. And the energy from moving to standing still has to go somewhere. And it's given off in heat. And so when you spray water onto something, uh, you actually make it a little bit warmer as it freezes. So as you encase that bud or encase the leaves or uh, blossoms in, in water, you're actually forming a small film of water around it. And then ice that is it's freezing is giving off heat, but then you're adding more water to it. So the sensible heat, the heat that's just present from the well, is going into that ice to keep it around 32 degrees Fahrenheit, which helps to keep that bud at a reasonable temperature without going into the deep freeze. It, it's a really cool property of water, and it's why spraying trees with overhead irrigation is an effective way to combat a freezing uh, with some caveats. Okay, well, with some caveats, let's talk about those in a minute. But first, how long do you have to leave the sprinkler on for? Can you put it on for an hour and then turn it off to save water and then go to sleep? Uh, yeah, what's the best yeah, approach? That's the unfortunate part. You really do have to be all in. Uh, you have to start the water flowing before the freezing temperatures because uh, the lines freeze or you get a little bit of ice buildup on the actual spraying nozzle. Uh, no water comes out and it freezes solid and you can't easily undo it. This is particularly a problem when you're using microjet irrigation. So the very fine mist or the foggers that once those ice up, they tend to take a while to de-ice. Um, even if you're flowing warm water over them, they still are not good if, you know, if they're frozen. So you start it early and you really have to keep freezing, keep applying it because if you stop, the ice that you already applied starts to drop to ambient temperature and actually does freeze the bud even further. It does provide some insulation and protection and keeps the heat that's inherent in the branch and in the bud in that area, but it's still better to continually apply water. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're continually applying water. Does it ever get to the point where the branches will be so heavy with ice that the branches could break? Absolutely. It's one of the major problems is that you start to get too much of an ice load and, and you do put considerable strain on the tree. So you have to be kind of careful in how you do this. And a lot of it has to do with the rate in which it freezes. Most of the water that you're applying will form ice to a point and then water will just fall right off. So you do have to be careful. You do have to think about it and watch it carefully, but it can be an excellent strategy to saving your buds. Okay, the morning then comes, you've watered these trees from up high all through the night. The temperature gets back to normal during the day. You turn off your sprinkler. Um, is everything safe and sound? You've still got ice um, on these blossoms. What happens next? Does it just drip and they're okay? Is that what the next step is? It's pretty much what happens at that point. The, the, the ice just drips, the ice falls off, and that's it. Uh, it, it's uh, you do have to be careful about the physical damage of falling ice and those kinds of things. But in general, it's uh, once the ambient temperature is above freezing, it's relatively <laughs> safe to remove. And would you ever use this together with our umbrella tarps over the trees? The two are potent together because, but not from watering overhead. The best is watering under tarp. <laughs> so even if you can get the ground extremely <laughs> wet, if you don't have running water, say, from a uh, microjet or sprinkler system, if you can get the water really wet underneath that tree before you put the skirt over it, then that means that the, as that ground starts to freeze, it'll give off heat. And it also will protect the roots because it'll get, keep the war ground a little warmer right around where the roots are. And that's important in these kind of marginal times of year. Uh, for, for us, we run uh, microjet irrigation with really small little fine little mist that runs underneath that tree and produces almost a fog. And when that air is saturated with high humidity from a mist, every one of those little mist bubbles as it begins to uh, freeze is giving off heat. So we can really generate an, a, a really surprising amount of heat as you play with what's called the heat of fusion. Wow. So 
do commercial grow growers just do they have all sorts of these sprinklers set up in their orchards like you know you mentioned uh, Georgia uh that this this year Georgia it was it this year that Georgia's had some problems tell me a little bit about that I read that in the north of Georgia and uh, South Carolina Tennessee up there where they have a significant amount of peach acreage that there was significant freezing right about the time of the um, of the uh, bud break. And so a number of, quite a few buds were lost, quite a few, uh, probably all the peaches altogether were lost this year. So that's really a, a, a sad note because it does happen occasionally. The silver lining on that is that the resources that would have gone into setting a fruit now can go into the roots and you know, during the year's photosynthesis uh, and in building the tree. So this way next year's crop will be a little bit better. Oh boy. And and how would they have been caught without putting the sprinkler on? Would the sprinkler systems have protected those trees in Georgia? It's unlikely that a commercial operation of most size would, would have the opportunity to protect at that level. Uh, just the sheer amount of water you would need to apply would be really high. So it's a gamble that, uh, that uh, farmers take. Um, it's a, uh, it, it's, uh, you know, it's the same thing that, uh, Commodity farmers like corn farmers face when they get uh, drought and extreme heat. Weather events do shape our ability to produce food. And that's a really important point for going forward. How, how do we manage what we can? And the overhead irrigation is great if you got a smaller operation, but, you know, so many acres, it becomes very challenging. Okay, let's go for one more little science bit, Mr. Science Podcaster. Because you mentioned to me when we chatted earlier that there that there is the use of fans in orchards that can help. So explain to me the science behind why would fans in an orchard ha- help to protect fruit trees from deep freeze events? You see this in certain places. It's kind of cool. So you can use these uh, significantly massive turbines to disrupt the air. So why does that matter? On extremely still nights, you get what are called radiant heat, radiant freezes. And if you think about the uh, air from the ground to the to the sky as a gradient of hot or well warm air near the earth to cold air very high, that the warm air is, is the heat of the day is being given off by the earth and keeping the, the lower areas warm. That usually is kept in by a blanket of clouds on a very clear night you'll find that that heat escapes and then the cold air which is much more dense drops down like a rock cold air drops down you get really cold temperatures right at the ground level which is why you get frost and things above freezing you get cold air right at the uh, very low to the ground and uh, that's significant it really is a problem so what you can do in what blueberry growers throughout um, alabama and mississippi will do is they will have uh, gigantic wind turbines and they'll start the turbines to stir the air that the warm air and the cold air stir so that it never is getting a uh, the ability to have that inversion as they call it where the cold air just drops and uh, they've, they've used the big turbines they also use helicopters so when you have uh, you know acres and acres of citrus trees the valuable crop out there that you're going to lose Hiring a couple helicopters to come over and fly to break up the temp- the temperature inversion is a good investment. <laughs> well, we've got another uh, email from Jeff. Okay, so Jeff has some great, some more great questions. So Jeff says, "Are there sprays that can help keep blossoms safe from freezes?" That's his first question, and I want to link it into a question I have from Steph. And Steph says, "Have you ever heard of liquid seaweed as an option?" to mist on the night of a frost in an effort to increase the hardiness of blossoms temporarily. So what is your thought on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So, you know, Jeff's question, there have been some uh, innovations over the years that have, uh, that have helped the freezing process. So freezing occurs around what's called nucleation. You actually have an organization of water molecules around something that allow that ice crystal to start to form. Pure water will not form an ice crystal until minus 38.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is almost the same thing Celsius. And so pure water will have a hard time freezing. 
but it will freeze when it has a nuclei, nucleating element. So uh, there are different molecules that facilitate this, dust will facilitate it, uh, as long as there's something that, that has ability to start that crystal. And so if you can break that crystal and break the formation of the crystal, that's good. So there's things that you can use that are relatively benign. Um, I don't know the exact ones they put in horticultural mixtures, but uh, my guess is things like ethylene glycol, which is similar to the stuff that you use in the uh, or propylene glycol, stuff that's similar to the stuff that you use in radiators um, uh, and other types of compounds that uh, slow the formation of that initial seed of ice crystal. Um, there's some other things that have been done over the years with different kinds of bacteria that uh, that help reduce crystal formation, but uh, those never work terribly well. But there's, there's a lot of things out there that may do it. Seaweed extract, got me. I've never heard this one, but my guess is that there are um, potentially uh, salts and other things in there that can help depress the freezing. And so that could be something that could be uh, could be beneficial. Very interesting. Yeah, something to investigate the liquid seaweed option. Uh, Jeff's second question. During a cold spell, the air is inverted, meaning the air gets warmer as you go up. If uh, I have wondered about putting a fan on top of my house, on top of my house, and blowing it towards my trees. I've used the above ground pool, a hot tub and a grill what do you think about my fan on the house trick? <laughs> oh, Jeff is awesome. <laughs> he is. He absolutely is awesome. Yeah. You talk about an innovator. Yeah. I mean, I, there's no reason it wouldn't work. The idea that when you're in, when you're stirring the air, you're decreasing the likelihood of inversion. It depends on the size of the fan. Uh, they have some of these really big ones that are about, you know, two meters across that you can buy even at a local hardware store uh, that, could cause significant disruption of air currents to at least get you through a light freeze and avoid that inversion. The inversion is the big problem because that cold cold air drops like like a blanket and spreads like like liquid. It goes to the lowest points in the field and and will get bring the coldest temperatures to those areas. Now I know that Jeff. Uh, I have a picture of Jeff uh, who has a cherry tree beside his hot tub. And he put a big tarp over the hot tub and the cherry tree together. So creative person, you must say. Um, also, I learned from Jeff something interesting. Uh, Jeff wrote me earlier and he says, I've typically covered trees with plastic tarps. They were rather cost prohibitive until I got in with the winter backyard hockey rinks people. And they throw away huge pieces of plastic that are used as liners for winter win, winter hockey rinks. So that, Jeff, was a fantastic tip. So I, last year, went out and got a, myself a big leftover hockey tarp. Actually, one of my friends got it for us that we keep in our shed because tying together all those tarps was tricky. I have yeah. another story that came in from Facebook. This is from Leslie in Georgia. So listen to this story. Leslie writes, our plums came out three to four weeks early this year. They usually come out early after we get some warm weather here in North Georgia mountains in January. But this winter was so early that when we had five to six days of sustained temperatures between 23 and 28 degrees Fahrenheit, we lost all our plums, peaches, and most of our pears. So this is what Leslie says, we're moving to dwarfing rootstocks and late blooming cultivars so we can try more aggressive frost prevention methods. We're trialing a bunch of cultivars to see what works in the coming years. Then we'll pare it down to the ones that perform best or just throw in the towel and stick to apples. I hope they don't throw in the towel. Um, so what role would the choice of a tree play when you are considering this fluctuating climate that we're getting now? Um, is there anything we can do by choosing carefully the cultivars and the rootstocks that we use? Yes, absolutely. One time, uh, very, very, this is a very, very important point, is that the way that buds decide when to break is an integration of different uh um, signals they're getting from the environment, plus their onboard genetics. And they go through two different phases. The first one's called endodormancy. 
And this is where a bud gets into a very dormant uh, quiescent state. It's metabolically active, but it's not going to grow. It's going to uh, stay nice and tight against the tree and safe. What happens somewhere after it counts a certain number of cold hours, so hours between zero and 10 degrees uh, Celsius, the, the bud is actually counting its exposure to the chill. And it kind of knows when winter is over because the chill hour requirement has been satisfied. Then it switches to another program called eco-dormancy, where it starts paying attention to the accumulation of heat units. And so what we're seeing more and more of, and I'm seeing it too, and, and your uh, writer saw the same thing, is trees leafing out early because they're satisfying the endodormancy part uh, because they always did uh, for trees that were adapted to that area. But now eco-dormancy is coming faster. What normally would take several weeks or months is now happening in days to weeks. And we see the trees that were leafing out in April now we're leafing out in early March. And this year for me, persimmons and jujube are way too early. And, um, it, and if you get a freeze, it will kill them. So the solution is either use the late breaking trees, but you know, that's not, a, that's not a lot of fun. Now you have late trees and late fruit, you know, but what I would do and what I've done is we have, we plant the entire set. We plant things that flower early, things that flower late. We have the space to do it, which is a luxury, but um, planting a variety there means that maybe you'll get some really early season fruit. Like this year, we're just swimming in mulberries because the early trees produced a mountain where previous years they were frozen off. So the trees were really excited to produce for us this year. So planting a range, especially if you're selling at a farmer's market, like we do, it always helps to have a, a little something on the table every week. So we spread it over the season by having different genetics that respond to the temperatures differently. And so are scientists now developing more and more cultivars that maybe can handle fluctuations well? Like, are there any that you know of? I don't know, like Reliance peaches or something where, yeah, yeah, go for that. You'll have no problems. Yeah, well, this is, this is a really tricky thing to do because to develop the next great peach tree takes 10, 15 years. And so how do you shoot for a moving target. And so you try to come up with varieties that are more resilient to any kind of stress, whether it's biotic stress like insect or uh, pest pathogen, or whether it's uh, weather stress. And you come up with trees that seem to do a little bit better regardless of what stress it is. They just seem to be a little bit more resilient. They bounce back a little better. And if you have that, then that way we are kind of halfway there for any future challenges. Uh, breeders are working on that. So do you have any words of wisdom from your experience as the guy freezing cold in the car, waiting to see if he needs to protect the blossoms from the person who's, you know, seen the disappointment of losing a, har a harvest, but also seen the joys of, you know, getting wonderful harvests? Is there any advice for growers who are struggling to find a solution to these problems? Well, I think you have to thrive on failure. And to me, having something crash means I didn't think about it hard enough or come up with better solutions. And I think that going forward, I would be more likely to take more extreme measures to protect a tree and maybe even uh, constructing ahead of time um, small uh, hoop houses that, you know, the hoops that I could stretch some plastic over or something like that, and maybe heat inside with a radiant heater or mist. Um, come up with strategies ahead of time that are a little bit more extreme, maybe a little bit more costly. Um, previously, I was always kind of cutting corners because, you know, a moving blanket costs less than, uh, you know, a heater. But I think it's one of these things where it's important enough and profitable enough where it makes sense for us to invest a little bit more in some more maybe radical and complete solutions that are a little more energy to deploy. Oh, fantastic. Before we go, we've got our contest coming up, which is always fun. But before we go, tell us how we can listen to your podcasts. And and the, the science one sounds fascinating. Well, Talking Biotech is, um, is the one I've done for eight years. Uh, Talking Biotech started when Joe Rogan told me to do a podcast. And it was, uh, it was all about uh, the big breakthroughs that are happening at the level of biotechnology and medicine, conservation, and agriculture. 
And so a lot of tricks of genetic engineering that will affect many aspects of our lives in the future, relative risks and benefits, and the things that really can are focused on solving problems for people with nutrition and uh, food insecurity and the planet. So what, what can we do to help uh, fruit growers and herbal help anything with respect to ecology and protecting our environment? Uh, we have uh, 10 billion people coming in a few years. And we have to grow more food on less space. And that's a challenge I take real seriously. Uh, the other podcast, we just cover three recent news stories. And it's kind of fun. Well, it sounds great. And so where can we find them? On your website? Do you want to share your website? I don't have them on a website, unfortunately. I am uh, at kevinfolta.com, where it's really more of an uh, introduction to what I do for a um, in, in strategic communication training, that kind of thing, which I do a lot of for farmers and uh, and others. But um, you can find them anywhere on iTunes or Spotify or on collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. They do uh, um, laboratory software and they sponsor the podcast. Oh, very cool. Okay, it's time. It's time to find out who won today's contest. So, Gary, will you help us with that? I will. Kevin, I have the names in a little bucket here. I'm going to shake. You tell me when to stop. You'll be able to hear that. And uh, I will pull out a piece of paper with the winner. And uh, I know the studio audience here today is very excited. So are you ready to go, Kev? I think I can do it. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three, stop. Okay, that was a quick stop. Hold on <laughs> for a second. And let me pull out this paper. And it looks like... Uh, Jeff N. from Illinois. Yeah, Jeff uh, from Illinois. Thank you very much. You are the winner today. The studio audience here, very happy, standing on their feet. So back to you, Susan. <laughs> that studio audience, man, they got really excited. So, Jeff, we're going to be in touch uh, as to how you can get your copy of the book. And before I wrap up for today, I want to say hi to some of the listeners that wrote me this month. So hello to everybody, including Ken and Sean and Monica, Bob, James, Hank, and Nicholas. Thanks for writing me. And also thanks to Rita. Rita wrote me that sometimes my listeners might want to see a visual of these shows. Well, Rita, I have the answer for you. Because starting two months ago, I am now creating every show as a full video as well. So you can find each episode on the Orchard People YouTube page. So it has the full visual interview. And I'm putting in tons of photographs and videos and visuals just to bring it to life to make it because sometimes it's hard to picture the things we're talking about. I'll post the video usually a day or so after the podcast. And of course, if you want to listen to the podcast, you can go to orchardpeople.com slash podcasts and you can hear all the old episodes. By the way, everybody, episode number 100 is coming up this year. So we've got to think about, I want to get emails from you. What would you like to hear about in episode 100 of the Irvin Forestry Radio Show and podcast? I don't know what to do. I want some ideas from you. Okay, so you can see the video of this episode coming up with some amazing pictures in a couple of days on Orchard People's YouTube channel. And I want to say thank you to you, Kevin, for coming on the show today. That was so packed with wonderful information. I really appreciate you spending the time with us and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you, Susan. I always appreciate an opportunity to share the science. It's kind of what I do. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. And that's it for today. I am going to say goodbye for now. But anybody who wants to listen to this again, listen to other podcasts, go to orchardpeople.com slash podcasts. I've been speaking to Dr. Kevin Folta from the Horticultural Sciences Department of the University of Florida, Gainesville. And I will see you all next month when we have another great topic coming up. So hopefully I'll see you then. Take care and bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.